Hi, I'm Rhiannon. You're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. Today on the show, episode one of our in-depth series on the decline in democracy. Most of the nearly 300 confirmed cases are at hospitals like this one here in Wuhan, ground zero for this mysterious virus. And it's also showing up in other cities. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the world dramatically, becoming part of our daily lives for the past 18 months. But as it turns out, COVID is more than just a threat to our health. It's also a threat to democracy around the world. But what's really, really been striking for me has been, you know, you have very significant pre-existing backsliding in recognised democracies that simply went into high gear when the pandemic arrived. Today's episode features two guests. First, I chat with Associate Professor Tom Daly. Tom is the Deputy Director of the University of Melbourne School of Government. We'll be discussing the different ways COVID-19 is testing democracies internationally and at home in Australia. After the break, you'll hear from Asanga Abayagunasakera, an international security and geopolitics analyst. We'll be discussing democratic backsliding and the COVID-19 pandemic in Sri Lanka. Tom, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. We're really excited to have you here to talk about the decline in democracy, as well as how COVID-19 has contributed to this. To kick us off, are you able to give us a bit of context about yourself, uh, your professional and academic background, and how you've come to become engaged in the area of democracy and more specifically COVID-19 and democracy? Absolutely. Thanks, Rhiannon, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, Such an interesting podcast. So about me, I mean, I've taken a very circuitous route towards being very interested in democracy. I would call myself a democracy obsessive. Um, And I've turned from that into a COVID and democracy obsessive. But really, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from Ireland, um, but I've actually worked in a whole range of countries um, and I've worked in government, in international organisations and in academia. So I've sort of, uh, I used to run the office of the Chief Justice in Ireland. I went from there to doing sort of uh, consultancy work with the Council of Europe, especially with the sort of younger democracies in the Council of Europe. Um, and went on there to work in places like Georgia, Turkey. I've worked all over since um, and and, and entered academia sort of uh, in the early uh, 2010s uh, doing research on Brazil. And I'm now here, so much more focused on Asia Pacific. So sort of um, a a long circuitous route, but um, the thread through all of it is, uh, is I've always been dealing with how do we maintain our democracies? How do we build good democracies? So we've seen over the past couple of years just how COVID-19 has tested and undermined democracies globally. I wonder, in your opinion, in what ways has this pandemic emboldened political leaders to engage in undemocratic behaviour and how have politicians and governments exploited this pandemic to gain power and encroach on certain freedoms? Yeah, it's a great question. It's the question on everyone's lips, isn't it? I mean, the pandemic has negatively emboldened political leaders in so many ways. It's actually, uh, how can you list them? But my team and I have been following this since April 2020 on our COVID Dem database, which is located on the DemDEC platform. Um, and it tracks how the pandemic is affecting democracy worldwide. You know, the effect of emergency measures, rights restrictions, the abuse of sort of uh, emergency measures to cut down on the opposition, on crit- criticism 
on civil society, power grabs. But we also sort of look at what are the good news stories as well. So if you take the whole world um, and the democratic world in particular, the democratic starting point of each country really matters, you know, when COVID hit. So I tend to sort of look at it as four different categories. You have the effective rationalists, those ones that were sort of generally well-functioning democracies when COVID hit. They've taken a broadly rational approach to suppressing the virus, uh, try to maintain, you know, the rule of law and maximum democratic functioning. So the likes of New Zealand and Australia, not perfect, but sort of they've really put in a lot of effort. You've constrained rationalists who also have been very law abiding and rational policymakers, but have been constrained by state capacity or lack of state capacity. So places like South Africa. Then you have the autocratic opportunists. They're the ones we're most worried about, really, because these are where you have pre-existing democratic backsliding. And then although the leaders have taken COVID seriously, they pounce on this emergency as a way to diminish the opposition and so on. Um, and so Hungary is an example, Indonesia, Indonesia is an example there. And very finally, um, and this was a, a necessary category I thought was the fantasists. So these are the likes of the USA under President Trump and Brazil under President Bolsonaro, where there has been no acceptance that there is a really severe public health emergency, and that has really, really sort of distorted their um, response. And it has included trying to cut down on, you know, the provision of fact-based information, showing that this is a real emergency and really needs, um, you know, a democracy, dem any democratic government should be able to protect its people. You know, this is one of the central things that a democracy should do. Um, so those are the four categories that I tend to keep in mind. Yeah, I suppose that kind of leans nicely into my next question um, of how the pandemic has been used by certain politicians, and you touched on it briefly there, um, as a distraction in order to consolidate power. Could you speak a bit more to that, please? So here we're talking about that third category, you know, the autocratic opportunists. And Hungary is a very good example, as I mentioned, because you have these emergency powers that were uh, brought into play shortly after COVID hit, but they were very broad. They weren't time limited. They invested a huge amount of power in the prime minister with very little oversight. And alongside that, then you get the government producing a fake news law, which has been really abused um, to, you know, stifle opposition criticism, to attack opponents and so on. Um, so that's a really good example in terms of geopolitical and symbolic importance, though, for me, what's been most striking has been how the Chinese government very quickly after COVID hit, took a series of measures to reduce Hong Kong's freedoms. This includes, you know, draconian national security legislation, changing the electoral system to effectively ban pro-democracy candidates. And we just ha saw the elections under this new system, the Patriots-only system um, held in Hong Kong. And it's all made Hong Kong operate much more like the mainland. So what we're all worried about, we were all worried about since the handover in 1984, not that colonialism was a good thing, but there was concern that the sustainability of the one country, two systems model, that it would not actually be sustainable. And that's come to pass. You know, Hong Kong is no longer free or at least anything like as free as it was. And you've tens of thousands of citizens now leaving Hong Kong as a result. Um, so that's a very stark example as well of what's happened under cover of COVID. 
What's useful from this standpoint now compared to this time last year is we now have a whole load of leading international democracy assessment reports that have come out and given us a clearer picture of what's happening worldwide. So this is the likes of Freedom House, the Vidim Institute, Economist Intelligence Unit and International Idea and so on. But what they're kind of tending to show us is that functioning liberal democracies, which weren't already undergoing a market process of backsliding or decay, have been largely resilient to date. So they're not perfect, but they've been largely resilient. So the likes of Australia, Ireland, where I'm from, Germany, South Korea, you know. Um, and, you know, you still have all these issues with sidelined parliaments. You have stifled protests, you have excesses. Um, but the main worry about those ones is that emergency measures will become normalized into the future or that certain aspects will be retained. So there's this ratchet sort of idea, the ratchet effect, that once it's in place, it will just sort of be cranked up. But the declines in political freedoms have been concentrated worldwide in exactly what you said, in autocratic regimes, but also hybrid states. These states that sort of occupy the big grey zone between full liberal democracy and hard authoritarianism. So the likes of Bangladesh, Cambodia, Cameroon and so on. But what's really, really been striking for me has been, you know, you have very significant pre-existing backsliding in recognized democracies that simply went into high gear when the pandemic arrived. So India is the biggest issue here. You know, a lot of the new 2021 reports no longer recognize India as a liberal democracy. So Freedom House deems it partly free. VDEM classifies it as an electoral autocracy. These are the types of terms you get. But what it essentially means is India is no longer considered a real democracy by many experts. And what's happened is you get this centralization of power in the ruling party and especially in the prime minister, which was already happening, but it just gets accelerated. On top of that, you have parliament not sitting for six-month stretches at a time. You have anti-COVID measures that have been implemented extremely harshly. In fact, sort of top four countries where there have been the most measures that have been considered concerning are China, Cuba, Bangladesh, and India. And then you have, you know, laws enacted to reduce the Muslim minorities' rights have passed with less international condemnation than we might have seen if COVID wasn't occupying everybody's attention. And that's before you even get to sort of the, the ma major impact on fragile states like Venezuela or Myanmar. We're seeing this kind of broader shift in norms during this time. I suppose the majority of voters would agree that in order to curb the spread of COVID-19, certain limitations on freedoms are necessary. I wonder... How do you think political leaders in this day and age should balance the need on one hand to maintain public health with, on the other hand, the need to uphold a strong democratic culture? Yeah, I think that is, once again, one of these quintessential questions that everyone's grappling with. I think a few key things need to be borne in mind here. You know, the first is that emergency powers are not in themselves undemocratic. What's important is that the measures taken have a sound legal basis, that they're necessary and proportionate, that they're time limited, and that there's adequate oversight and possibility of review. Now, it's often on issues like proportionality, you know, whether a measure goes beyond what's actually needed, um, that states have fallen short. And in many countries, that's less problematic if you have a functioning parliament during COVID, if you have open channels for criticism of measures, if you've courts empowered to access measure uh, or to assess measures against a Bill of Rights. 
that's sort of where things have fallen down in places like Australia. And because although there has been broadly, as I said, there have been effective rationalists, there has been rational, you know, fact-based policy, there has been careful sort of consideration by governments across um, the Commonwealth, the oversight has been lacking in some ways because not enough effort has been made to ensure parliaments are adequately functioning. And then you don't have a federal Bill of Rights as a yardstick. So you can't, as a citizen, go to the courts and say, you know, I think this violates my rights. Um, and get some sort of definitive judgment from the courts, which has happened in other countries like Germany, for example. And this is why, you know, citizens uh, who are stranded, Australian citizens stranded outside the state, have actually taken a case to the UN, for example, to try and and get um, a shift in policy in Australia. But I think, you know, beyond the formal institutions themselves, I think it's really important for leaders to communicate very clearly with the public to be very careful in crafting policy themselves, not to see other institutions as checking institutions, but to do that internally, to be as freedom respecting as possible. And also, you know, to call out things like disinformation, which has been a huge issue in Australia and worldwide. And I think the global sort of lesson from this, you know, is that democracy is more than your elected leaders. Democracy is more than, than just elections. You know, democracy is a broad-based system. It works best when you have sort of elected leaders, civil society, um, independent institutions and independent experts all working together. doesn't mean they're all, always all going to agree, but there shouldn't be complete centralization of power or control in one sort of site. This kind of brings me to my final question. How do you think we can correct this supposed decline in democracy and restore it in light of COVID-19. I suppose you've touched on that in the context of Australia. Do you think, do you have any other suggestions for what should be done globally to restore democracy? Yeah, once again, this is the million dollar question, you know. Um, And although the picture can look very bleak, actually what COVID has done in some ways, it has shaken us awake and really made us see possibilities that we didn't actually see before. You know, I always say, COVID didn't so much cause weaknesses in our democracies as reveal them. And so, you know, if you try to think about good news stories, there are things like we've seen a lot of countries changing how they organize elections to make them more inclusive, you know, using early voting, using postal voting. Saw that in South Korea last, you know, April 2020. Saw it in New Zealand. You had a huge rise in advanced voting. You drive through voting in the Czech Republic, extension of absentee ballots in the U.S., Hybrid parliaments, you know, where you have uh, members attending both in person and online, that has been a big eye opener as well, because, you know, research from the UK, for example, shows that the use of hybrid parliaments had, you know, MPs being able to spend more time in their constituencies, uh, more contributions from female MPs, less booing, less jeering, more focus on the actual substance of debates. And the final thing is we've seen this explosion of creativity at grassroots level. So, you know, everything from very sort of imaginative protests, we have, you know, the grassroots response to the silencing of parliament in India was the setup of an online people's parliament, a janta parliament, um, to talk about things like health, economic issues, rights issues. We've had citizens assemblies set up in the UK to, at the local level to give citizens more of a voice in the COVID recovery. 
even here closer to home, you know, the Pathways to Politics program for aspiring female um, politicians at the, the School of Government and the University of Melbourne, created with the Troala Foundation and the Women's Leadership Institute, we, you really see this huge uptick in people who want to make a difference and COVID has spurred them on. And so, you know, th- those all contain huge lessons for us that we have to have more participation, that digital can sort of bring us more, but we cannot replace the physical with the digital. Once again, it's about what's getting the best balance. How can we sort of enhance um, how our democracies work? Um, But I think things like being blasé about our parliaments being sidelined for months on end, those are the things that worry me. But the, the, the sort of good news stories give me a bit more sort of hope because you know, if Facebook was down for a day, it'd be headline news. Parliaments are sidelined for ages. It's barely talked about, you know, but but what these good news stories remind us about is that even during COVID and because of COVID in many ways, there's been a democratic awakening or reawakening. People can see very sharply, very starkly what happens when you have fewer democratic freedoms and they're willing to fight for them. They're willing to protect them. They're willing to call out bad behavior. And that can only be a good thing. Absolutely. I mean, it's very nice hearing some hopeful news in the world and in Australia and giving some hope for democracy as well. If any one of our listeners want to know more, read some of your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I think one of the easiest ways to, to get to me is on Twitter. I'm uh, handle at Democracy Talk. Once again, Democracy Obsessive. And you can look up the COVID Dem database on our website, which is www.democratic-decay.org. And you can also find me on the School of Government's web pages, especially under the Renewing Democracy and Governing During Crises web pages. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really engaging, thought-provoking, relevant, and, and really hopeful as well. So thanks so much. Keep listening because after the break, I chat to Asanga Abey Gunasakara on how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected democracy in Sri Lanka. We are always looking for new writers. Whether you're here in Melbourne or abroad, visit us at our website theyoungdiplomats.com under the Get Involved tab to find out more. I am joined by Asanga Abeya Gunasakera. Abeya is an international security and geopolitics analyst and strategic advisor from Sri Lanka. He has almost two decades worth of experience in the government sector, working in foreign policy and defence think tanks in advisory and research positions. So welcome, Asanga. We're very excited to have you here. To kick us off, are you able to give us a bit of context about yourself, your professional and academic background, and how you've gotten to where you are in your career? Um, Yeah, so I've been working for think tanks uh, for the last 10 years, um, starting from foreign policy think tank uh, in Sri Lanka and then uh, moving to a national security think tank uh, called the Institute of National Security Studies. So I happen to be the founding director general of that. So today we're really interested in talking to you about the decline in democracy in Sri Lanka in particular. You've written a really incredibly um, insightful article for the Observer Research Foundation on this topic. 
I'm wondering if you could give us a general overview of the political situation in Sri Lanka prior to COVID-19. So the uh, prior to um, the COVID-19, we had a, a presidential election in Sri Lanka uh, where the regime was changed. Uh, and uh, we have a first uh, auto, uh, executive president who coming from a military background in the um, country's history. Uh, so the first time, again, we have a sibling government, uh, the two brothers, uh, president is holding the executive powers, the prime minister is his brother, who happened to be the former uh, president back in 2015, uh, prior to 2015, Mahinda Rajapaksa. In what ways has the Rajapaksa dynasty's response to the COVID-19 pandemic endangered democracy in Sri Lanka? Well, it came uh, with some structural adjustments initially uh, to the constitution. Uh, it started with the uh, amendment to the constitution, bringing uh, legislative powers to the executive branch. So, I mean, the, the structural adjustment uh, gave uh, ample power uh, to for, for the president. So what you see is a, a reduction uh, moving away, uh, I would say, from a quasi-democracy to an autocratic uh, rule. Do you think that the Sri Lankan government has used COVID as a distraction in order to concentrate its power? And if it has, how has it done so? No, COVID-19 environment, uh, I think it was a blessing for the regime uh, the, I mean, who was who's having autocratic grip, especially when you want to pass legislation, for, for example, like uh, policies in the parliament, the, one of the best examples I can give you is the Port City project, uh, which is a Chinese project, and uh, uh, the approval was given within 30 days without much public debate, discussion. Uh, when the Supreme Court also mentioned there is serious uh, uh, concerns in the agreement, um, this is uh, also, uh, I mean, it, it, uh, so this sort of activities, uh, you don't see much protest. People can't come out, uh, voice their opinion. Most of the uh, government uh, policies are taken without public uh, participation. Uh, so the environment has a blessing to to basically suppress the uh, you know the the multiple voices, as well as to expand uh, the autocratic footprint. What do you think needs to be done in order to reverse the Rajapaksa's? dynasty's concentration of power over time. Is there any hope for democracy in Sri Lanka? Now, one of the reasons that you need to uh, recalibrate, uh, I mean, you need to nudge uh, Sri Lanka government to recalibrate its posture uh, is because of the significant security threat that Sri Lanka can bring to the region, especially to India as well as the neighboring countries. When you have a dysfunctional state, you, you try to uh, export significant security threat also. So one has to remember that it goes beyond borders. What the international community could do is to, you know, uh, advise uh, countries like Australia, tell Sri Lankan government as well as, you know, to follow a rules-based order. The, uh, I mean, Sri Lanka was amazingly part of uh, contributing to the law of the sea, the international norms back in the past. So it can revisit so Sri Lanka, uh, I think Sri Lankan government, Sri Lanka should be uh, advised uh, basically to recalibrate, relook at its position and uh, move towards, uh, you know, uh, a better 
foreign policy as well as a domestic posture. If any of our listeners want to know more, get in touch with you or read some of your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Twitter would be the uh, would be the best uh, as well as uh, on LinkedIn also I'm around. Thank you, Asanga, for this chat. It's been really interesting hearing about COVID-19 and the decline in democracy through the lens of Sri Lanka. Say thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's In-Depth episode. Join us next week for the wrap-up, Josh and Hugh's fortnightly recap of the news from around the world. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for memes, quizzes and regular news updates. Links are in the episode description. We'll see you next week.